Do you invest in ETFs? Whether you're thinking, what in the world is an ETF? Or you're looking for the next opportunity to add to your portfolio. GlobalX has you covered. From big tech to bonds and bars of gold, GlobalX offers a wide range of exchange-traded funds. Go beyond ordinary with GlobalX ETFs. Visit globalxetfs.com.au. That's globalxetfs.com.au. Are you thinking about starting your wealth-creating journey but not sure where to put your hard-earned dollars? InvestSmart can help. InvestSmart offers a free quiz that makes it easy to find the right InvestSmart ETF portfolio to help you reach your goals. Just visit investsmart.com.au and hit get started. Answer a few simple questions about your goals and how much you want to invest and you'll get a tailored statement of advice with a portfolio recommendation. You can visit investsmart.com.au for a no obligations free statement of advice. This ad is brought to you by InvestSmart Advice, AFSL 334107. Hey there, here's a quick note. This podcast contains general financial advice only. That means it's not specific to you, your needs, goals, or objectives. So don't act on the information until you've spoken with your financial advisor. You'll find our full disclosure, disclaimer, and link to our financial services guide in the show notes. Gaurav, welcome to the Australian Investors Podcast, mate. It's great to have you with me. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me on. I, um, I've followed you over the years through various channels on the telly, um, when you've done interviews or just through your writing. And I've got to say, I'm, I'm stoked to have you on the show. And I know a lot of our listeners will be fascinated with this conversation too. One of the things I, I like to do is go back to the start and understand a bit more about my guests to understand how perhaps their investment philosophy or view of the world has been shaped by their experiences. And I heard in an, it was kind of like an interview, I think it was on Ausbiz. I heard you say, and I quote, that I've lived in countries without electricity. Um, I know you went on to study at UNSW and you got a Bachelor of Arts and Commerce, but I really have no idea what led you from wherever you were then up until uni. So maybe you can just share a little bit of your backstory um, where did you grow up? And in particular, I'm looking for things here, like some threads that may explain entrepreneurialism or your willingness to take risk with capital, anything like that, where we can sort of trace your journey. <laughs> well, I mean, this is going to be very anticlimactic, I fear, because uh, <laughs> I, I don't have um, stories of me of, of, crawl, of me crawling in the mud or wanting to start a business at a young age. I had a very uh, normal uh, well, we start off as lower middle class and gradually moved up um, childhood. My, my parents migrated from India when I was two years old. Um, they're both quite from, from fairly poor families. My dad was the first one in his family to go to university. Uh, my father, by the way, is, is some sort of uh, genius. He, he taught university at age 20, was a PhD in nuclear physics, worked at CERN, um, speaks languages like he is he's properly intelligent now my, my overriding memory as a child is just being intimidated and awed by by him in particular but i had no great desire to do um investing until much later in life i was not really interested in business until much later in life um i grew up in australia i did relatively well at school um because if you came from a migrant family that's just what you did you know the the focus on every day was uh, trying to do get the highest marks you could. The refrain I heard from my parents all the time was, "We didn't leave one country to come to another 
so you could play games or so you could play soccer. We did it so you could have a better life. And I had that drummed into me, as I'm sure many first-generation migrants do. And uh, the people I went to school with, um, we, we generally had a similar migrant background as well. And they all, we all studied really hard. We got good marks at school. We went to university. And our lives were supposed to be working for big corporations and climbing corporate ladders. And, and mine just took a, a different turn. Hmm. So you said your father there was somewhat of a, of a genius. Did, did you ever want to kind of like emulate him and his journey into academia or anything like that? <laughs> uh, I, I know genius is supposed to be hereditary, but it, it completely <laughs> skipped me by. On, um, <laughs> I, I did not have the talents that, that he had. I was okay at math. I did relatively well. And as I said, I did okay at school. I went to James Roos at school and I did okay there. But I certainly did not have the heft that my, that my father had. Um, or for that matter, from that most of my peers had. Um, I, 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 um, I was merely struggling to keep up at, at James Roos. And, um, and so that really wasn't an option for me. I mean, I was interested in economics at a young age. And I remember my, um, uh, you know, hearing about economics from my school teacher for the first time and being properly enthralled by it in a way that I hadn't really been, in, been enthralled by any subject, I think, other than maybe um, literature and English. And, and I think I was so interested because, for me, that was e- economics was what explained how the world worked. You know, that was the best explanation I could find um, for why people did what they did, why events unfolded the way they did. And it wasn't necessarily about money, but economics is the study of incentives and of allocation of resources. And if you think if you understand those things and you become familiar with them, then the rest of the world starts to make a bit more sense. Mm. Did you, I think we'll get to this in a little while. I, f- I find that fascinating that you use that as the kind of the framework for understanding the world. And it's such a powerful thing, isn't it? You know, um, incentives, economic incentives are just pervasive in everything that we do. It's um, whether you're looking at the micro level or the macro level, uh, were there any books or anything that shaped your, I guess, view of the world in that respect? Like, were you reading um, any authors? Did you pick up anything to do with economics and thought, geez, this explains things quite succinctly for me? I've read a lot of novels as a young person, and I was mostly um, enthralled by stories. And I didn't really start to read um, nonfiction books until. Uh, you know, I started doing my HSC in year 11, 12, and, and then I started reading history books and, and economics books. And even from then, you could see that incentives matter. The way people make decisions, um, uh, the, the people make decisions that they do based on the, the incentives in front of them. And um, that, for me, was a bit of a, a revelation. That was one of the key insights I had from economics. I think most of my peers probably were busy with, um, you know, ISLM uh, graphs and supply and demand graphs. and uh, But for me, it was really the, that insight about incentives and, um, and, and trade-offs. Because economics is a study of resource allocation, every decision comes with a trade-off. And I could see that very, very clearly. And I think I understood that very clearly as well. And that's been, um, I think that's, they're, they're two things I've really carried um, into my investing life that, uh, that were very clear early on. If anyone hasn't read Freakonomics, I think that is a really good application of social science research. You know, that takes ideas of economics and tries to explain 
um, lots of uh, problems. Um, it tries to answer lots of problems from all over the world. Um, you know, one of the chapters is about why um, drug dealers resemble, the business model of drug dealers resembles McDonald's more than it does um, other empires. Uh, why the crime rate in the U.S. has fallen over the last few decades. You know, there are real big social questions that that book tries to answer using economic thought. And that was a great blueprint for me because I just thought you could use economics to answer all sorts of questions that maybe um, people didn't um, think about using it for. I might be um, testing you here, Gaurav, but do you remember why the you know drug dealing businesses were so similar to McDonald's. Now I'm fascinated. I don't know if I should go to McDonald's anymore. <laughs> <laughs> it was really about the, the, the structure of those enterprises. You know, you've got these the, a whole army of low-level workers who don't earn very much money but end up doing a lot of the grunt work and the benefits accrue to the very few people at the top of that pyramid. And the structure of uh, benefits and labour inside uh, a business like McDonald's resembles the structure of labor and rewards inside a drug distribution business where the where the, the street dealers actually make very little money and they work extremely hard in terms of labor and the guys at the top um, make all the money they they account for the bulk of the uh, accumulation accumulated surplus and um, and very little trickles down um, so it's it's that sort of um, you know everyone thinks drug dealers are always going to be wealthy and always going to be rich and in fact, um, most drug dealers live with their mothers in their in their parents' basement, and only a handful of them end up, um, you know, controlling empires. Fascinating. Um, okay, so I'm particularly keen to understand the origin story for you at Intelligent Investor. If I'm not mistaken, you got that job in 2009. I'm pretty sure this wasn't your first job out of uni, right? No, it wasn't. It wasn't at all where I expected to be, to be honest. When I finished uni, I, I, I knew I didn't want to work in a bank. I knew I didn't really want to wear a tie. But those were the only guiding principles I had. I didn't really know what I wanted to do. Um, I had an economics degree and a degree in political science and international relations. And, and I, you, know, you don't find um, jobs just popping popping up with those sort of qualifications. I actually first took a job at a think tank, um, the Center of Independent Studies. And um, it was it was fascinating. It was, it was really a research um, job. My, my boss was a ex World Bank um, economist, um, you know, a very famous uh, economist in Australia called Helen Hughes. She paid for my salary with her own money, um, and we just worked on all sorts of interesting things together for for a couple of years. Um, I adored her. Uh, she was about um, eighty five when she first hired me. You know, we used to go to her house in Double Bay and work together there. Uh, she taught me so much about writing and thinking like an economist. Um, and we worked on um, the main problem we worked on was was why the countries in the Pacific are so poor when the countries of Asia have become so wealthy. Um, you know, we were looking at that and and also some um, indigenous issues. Um, but the CIS was a wonderful place for a curious young person who just wanted to learn more about things because, we had fascinating speakers from all over the world who came and used to speak to us about all sorts of interesting things. Sorry to bring it back to drugs again, Owen, but one of the things that really stands out is um, we, we had a fellow who talked about um, how the cartels distribute drugs in Colombia and why uh, you know coke is, um, is is so universal in Africa, but clean water is hard to find. You know, these sorts of things that can be 
thought up as interesting tidbits. There's actually a lot of depth and uh, there's a lot going on there that explains economic systems um, when you look at those problems. And I got exposed to a lot of those ideas and it was fascinating. I got to go and, and travel all around the Pacific and, uh, and, and, you know, lived in, in slums in Papua New Guinea and, uh, and went around with the, the rascals over there, you know, driving all over the country. It was, it was, it was wonderful work. Um, and it was a wonderful first exposure as, as a young person who doesn't really know what to do. Just, it was almost like you being in university all over again and just learning as much as possible. Um, Gaurav, I'm going to pull you up for a second and double click on two things. One is you said Helen Hughes paid for your salary out of her own pocket. What drove her to do that? Um, the CIS is a, is a not, not-for-profit organization and it, it, the whole thing functions on, um, on donations. So she made a donation to, to hire me to get a research assistant and I was a research assistant. She paid for, for my salary for the first two years. Um, I, I never thought that that's what would happen. You know, I, I got in jobs at banks and things like that, but I just wasn't interested in working there. I wanted to do something interesting. I thought as a young person, you know, I didn't have any, any liabilities. I didn't have any financial ties holding me back. And I just really wanted to take those first few years just to, to learn about things and to do what I really wanted to do. And I don't regret that for a moment. They're wonderful years. Um, and I learned heaps um, in, the, in that time. What a place to scratch the curiosity, particularly with economics and um, it, I guess just international relations and affairs in general too. So the second thing I'm going to double click on, and this is, this is not, this wasn't the, our intention coming into this podcast is yeah. <laughs> the, 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 in Africa, the, uh, cocaine be more prevalent than water, like fresh water. I'm fascinated to understand if you remember why that may have been the case, why that speaker mentioned that that could happen. Yeah, he was actually talking about Coca-Cola rather than cocaine. But um, oh, the, okay. the idea was <laughs> the, the idea was just um, how do you establish such deep and successful distribution networks um, uh, when you can't even establish um, you know clean water everywhere? You know, how is it that a company like Coca-Cola can can make sure that every single tiny village um, has a bottle of Coke, often cold, ready for sale, and you can't get plumbing or clean water in that very same village. And um, that really came down to incentives. You know, the supplier of Coca-Cola has a monetary incentive, and um, they work hard and hustle to get their product uh, to that village, to that customer. The supplier of clean water is often a corrupt incompetent official who has no incentive to actually deliver the service and nothing at stake whether he fails or succeeds um so it was a it was the power of incentives really at work there that explained those two different outcomes hmm. okay so 2009 it's that basically the world is reeling from the gfc how did you get a job in investment research at intelligent investor <laughs> yeah, so this actually, this story actually begins in New Zealand of all places. Oh, and I think unlike most people, I can remember the exact day, the exact moment that I decided I wanted to become an investor. And it kind of came out of the blue. I was with a friend in New Zealand and we were just driving around. Um, he called me a couple of weeks ago and said, oh, look, I've, I don't have anything to do for the next few weeks. Why don't we just drive through New Zealand and we can we can see that country. And I didn't have anything to do either. I took some leave and and off we were. We, we went down to New Zealand and we were driving there. And I was sitting in South Island at an Airbnb. It was freezing cold. 
and um, I was reading a newspaper and it was an interview with Ken Nielsen from Platinum. And Platinum had recently listed at that stage and it was still a, a famous shop where everyone was in awe of this, um, of this big shot investor. And there was a line in that interview that said, um, investing is um, it's a profession for the outsider and Platinum is a place for outsiders to work. And in that interview, Kerr Nelson kind of explained how um, we call it variant perception now, which is a term I quite dislike because I think it sounds very snobby. But really what he's saying is to do well as an investor, you just have to look at the world differently. And if you're looking at the world differently, perhaps you as an individual are an oddball or an unusual individual. And that's okay. And that's the sort of person who does well in investing. That's the sort of person we want to hire. It was the first time in my life I had ever heard that um, – uh, you could be different, um, unusual, and think independently and be rewarded for all those characteristics. You know, most of my experience had taught me that um, those things are stamped out of you. To do well in any corporate organization, you have to conform. There's a set of expectations you have to live by. There's a dress code you have to adhere to. And there's all sorts of rules you need to follow. So this was the first time I had heard someone say that actually you can be yourself you can break the rules you want to break and you'll be rewarded for it. And I just thought, this is actually where I want to be. This is where I want to work. <laughs> and I'd been investing a little bit on the side. I'd won a university scholarship and I had, I think it was $10,000 or something at the time. And I didn't, I was investing that on the side very unsuccessfully, didn't know what I was doing, but um, it was kind of fun. And I thought, yeah, you know, I, I've done this before and I'm sure I can do this. And when I got back to Australia, I had resolved to um, to get a job in investing, uh, and that proved really hard. I think it took me about um, two years to get my foot into the industry. Uh, I'd had lots of interviews with everyone, lots of applications, lots of cold calls, and finally, a recruiter called me and said, "You know, we've got um, we've, we've got something interesting, which is at the intersection of sort of writing and investing, and you might be interested." And that's where I met the gents, and I use that term loosely, at Intelligent Investor, um, they, they called me and, and came in for an interview. And, and I think my life changed at that point. Did you apply for Platinum, a job at Platinum? Yes, I certainly did. I certainly did. I got, I got and in fact, I think I've applied altogether about three times for a job at Platinum over the years. The, for the first time, I think I was outright rejected. Um, I've got interviews at various stages at various times. But yeah, I've never gotten through at, at Platinum. Um, <laughs> but then again, I haven't. I've applied for a good eight years or so, to be fair. And I think, and I think they were they were right to to turn me down at every time because I really didn't know anything at that point, and um, I cringe at the sort of interview I would have given at the time. Mm. Kerr, if you're listening, um, <laughs> yes, Kerr <Grab> is here. <laughs> um, Ken Nielsen, by the way, I, I'm, he still remains to this day one of my investing heroes, and um, he's done events with Intelligent Investor in the past. Um, I've met him; he's a formidable individual. Kind of scary, to be honest, um, to meet in real life. But uh, again, it just remains for me one of the uh, the best investors in the country. Hmm. Fascinating. Uh, so you said you said gents. Um, at the Intelligent Investor, yeah. were you are you referring to Greg and Steve? Um, in, in that, yes, <laughs> yeah. yeah. You, you said in an email to me, Grab, that that your mentor, mentors have taught you everything. Um, 
curious to know maybe those formative years at Intelligent Investor and then some of the lessons that you learned from those two in particular, perhaps. It's it's a tricky thing, Owen. I think when you when you come to to a discipline without knowing anything, um, you want to learn as much as possible. I was aware that I didn't know very much. You know, I had no pretensions about how good I was going to be when I first started. I couldn't believe they gave me the job. I remember at the interview, it was uh, Greg, Steve, and John Addis, who was uh, and also an owner and, in fact, the founder of the business. Um, we were all sitting in a yum cha restaurant. Uh, John took his shoes and socks off and chucked his feet on the table. Um, they didn't really talk about anything to do with investing. We were just having a yarn about um, this and that, and we all just got along really well. Uh, then we came back to the office. Greg gave me a whole series of tests, which I failed miserably. And I still to this day do not understand why he gave me that job because it was clear I didn't know anything about investing. Um, I knew a little bit about about mining um, and I think they needed someone in that space and I suspect that's probably why why I got the job. Do you remember what the tests yeah. were? I've heard Greg I do. is one for this and um, I'm, yeah, I've never known anyone to, to live to tell the tale. So um, I'm curious to know what they are. They were great tests. We, we've replicated them a few times over the years, but one was he, he, laid, he laid three set of financial accounts in front of me. He said, right, one of these businesses is a retailer. One of these businesses is a bank and the other is a, is a um, construction firm. Tell me which one is which. Uh, I think I got that one wrong. And then he said, uh, again, another set, uh, three or four sets of um, balance sheets. And he said that one of these businesses is going to go under. Which one is going to go under? I think I got that wrong. And then um, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, then there was another one Some, along, along those similar lines. Um, you know, it's quite, quite detailed financial analysis, which I had no idea about at the time. Um, and failing those tests very early on um, really um, – gave me a lot of motivation to learn as much of the theory of investing as I could. And I remember just throwing myself into every single investing book I could find. Greg and in particular, but Steve as well, they're all they're both very big on on reading. And um, you know, any book I wanted to buy, uh, Greg just bought it for me. And and I went through pretty much I think most investors have this experience by now. They read all the books and I read all of them. And um and, and I actually think um, that's the most that's the most dangerous part of an investor's career. It's when you come from knowing nothing to knowing a little bit, because you don't know you know you know a little bit at that stage. You think you know a lot, <laughs> and um, you know that turned me into an investor who I think uh, was was very theoretical, very numeric, and just uh, thought of investing as a um, as a box ticking exercise where one followed a whole series of rules inputted a whole series of Excel uh, inputs and, and got an answer at the end. And your job as an investor was to follow that right answer. And for the first few years of my career, that's the way I invested. And um, it is all completely the wrong way to do it. Mm. I know we're going to talk about narratives and storytelling uh, in, in a few moments, but maybe if we can just continue on with your journey for a bit and just how you evolved within intelligent investor team and maybe the way to ask this question is how do you can you talk about the investment process that you follow at intelligent investor you mentioned that you may have had that kind of understanding of mining and resources which helped you so maybe this is like a question around how is your investment philosophy evolved over time and how do you execute that 
in process today? Yeah, intelligent, intelligent investing has always really been about um, deep research. Um, the idea is to become almost a subject matter expert in the company you're covering. So if you're covering GWA and you're looking at toilets, you are expected to be a expert on toilets. You have, they'll give you a couple of weeks to learn everything you can about plumbing and toilets. And at the end of that time, you present your knowledge to the group and um, you're expected to know everything about it. That was actually one of the attractions. I loved that. I loved that every month or so, I just got to learn everything I could about something completely new and often esoteric. Uh, you know, coming from my background, that was exactly what I wanted, and I really, really loved that. Uh, I think what I, I didn't really appreciate at the time was that um, having all that knowledge, um, learning about an industry is quite different to making an investment case and turning that into an investing decision. And the psychology takes a lot, lot more time to cultivate than the financial analysis. Um, you know, they, uh, in the first few years, I really just dwelt on learning accounting, um, picking up my financial skills, and uh, and learning as much as I could about individual businesses. Um, but I think that only goes so far. You really, the next step from there is to really um, understand your psychology and, and learn the role of of emotions in decision making and, and I think that's actually where a lot of your returns come from you, you said in an email to me you said to do okay you need to understand basic rules to exceed you need to understand when to break those rules I thought that was a fascinating sentence and I think worthy of something that we should talk about so this is something that I see in a lot of newer investors and by saying when I say new I mean maybe say three to five years into investing, um, people are fantastic researchers and they will learn everything they they can about toilets and they can, can summarize that for you pretty well. But then, you, as you said, translating that into an investment decision, seeing the forest and the trees is actually very difficult for a lot of people. How did you overcome that? I just made a whole bunch of mistakes, lost a whole bunch of money, and a whole bunch of bad decisions. So, and I don't think I don't think there's any other way to learn other than to make errors. And that by itself, you know, you, you know, when you come into work every day and you're just getting things wrong all the time, making error after error, bad decision after bad decision, that is hard. I mean, I went through a period when I thought, you know, I'm just not good at this. I should go and do something else I'm better at. Um, and uh, you know, to be honest, intelligent investors, it was a difficult environment. I mean, Greg was was very demanding. Um, you know, he's a, I think he was going through his own journey as well. Um, but, you know, when you get something wrong, they, they're not shy about telling you you got it wrong. Um, and I made a lot of errors in those early years. Um, and a lot of them had to do with um, exactly what you're describing. And it's it's thinking that investing is as simple as finding a low PE and a high yield and a decent ROE and thinking you've got yourself an investment case. Now, what you forget is all the stuff that you can see, everyone else can see. And this is not just a financial um, discipline. It's a competitive discipline. And um, you, know, you have to think about uh, what others are doing as much as what you yourself are doing. That, that's when I started to get, to get better, when I started thinking about um, an in investment case rather than just trying to buy something on a low PE. Mm. Do you think, Gaurav, I uh, do you think that we can speed up the process for investors in that journey? So um, maybe another way to, 
to tackle this is one of the things that I think about is like in my journey, what I could have done better. And one of the things that I feel like I could have done better is kept better notes, kept um, a proper journal of this is my decision and this is the outcome reflect. Uh, I didn't do that well enough. I've, I think in, um, I think maybe as a, as a model for improving or moving through that journey as quickly as possible. I feel like that's something that may have helped. Did, would you say something similar? I think writing is actually a really important part of the investment process. Um, you know, we ran a research business, so writing was instrumental to our process. Um, you know, we had to write our thesis down and, and we put our name to it and it stays there forever. And I think uh, Greg always used to say that that clear writing is an example of clear thinking. And there were lots of times where you often come up with your investment case as you're writing it all down. Um, you know, you learn so much about a business and as you organize your thoughts and, and write something down, that's when the clarity comes. So yes, I completely agree with you. And I think writing, writing down investment theses um, and, and writing down what you think, what you expect to see, what, what, uh, what is actually happening in a business is, is really, really important. It clarifies your own thoughts and then you have a record of, of, of what you thought was going to happen. You know, we often delude ourselves. Um, one, one exercise that Greg always has us do is, is before we come to a new business, he gets us to write down what the um, income statement and balance sheet look like um, of the business, what we expect to find, um, even though we know nothing about it. And he does that so uh, when we come and see the real numbers, we can't delude ourselves into thinking that that's what we expected to see. He wants to tease out the difference between what we think we're going to find and what we actually find. I think that's um, that, that, that if you draw that out a little bit further, you know, um, writing down um, your actual investment case and then comparing that to the way the world turns out is is probably the best way to learn. And you can only do that without uh, deluding yourself. If you have it physically written down somewhere, we can go back and check it. And that's one of the great advantages I have is that everything I've thought about a stock has been written down somewhere and is there for me to go and see. Mm. This is um this is theory in like with psychology and money that if you drool it tastes better. Uh, this is the idea of like delayed gratification and all that sort of stuff. And I've never heard it applied to an investing context. So uh, we we see this in you know, a lot of um, psychological type studies and reviews and and wellness type uh, gurus talk about this all the time about well what's your day going to look like write about it in the morning and what are you looking forward to? What are you grateful for? Because when those things happen, you will feel more happiness from them. And I feel like this is something from an investing context where we can, we can, before the fact, we're writing about what we expect to see, what we, what knowledge we have and how we can forecast that forward and whether or not that happens is something really interesting. Um, and like you said, I don't think we can do that unless we write it down. There was something else that you said in email, which was um, the best tool as an analyst um, is being prepared to look like an idiot and not to say not to carry on I wouldn't say you're an idiot by any stretch of the um, or any sense of the word but ha- how have you turned those mistakes into something positive for you over time so how have you accumulated that knowledge and I guess um, force that pattern recognition and feel free to use like an example of a company that you got wrong or something like this where it might illustrate like a lesson learned 
I feel like this could be an interesting counterpoint. <laughs> yeah, by that, by by being prepared to look like an idiot, there are really two two things I'm talking about. There, one is that um, you know if you think you're going to be right in this business all the time, you got you are you are um, you know you're completely deluded. Um, you know if you're in in any other industry, um, you're going to be right about your profession. 80, 90, 100% of the time. If you're an airline pilot, you better be right 100% of the time. If you're a doctor, you better be damn close to 100%. But if you're an investor, if you're right 50% of the time, I think you're doing okay. And the best of us will be right 60% of the time. So we have to get very comfortable with being wrong and not being um, self-conscious or beating yourself up about it or, or worried about looking like a fool. You know, um, being wrong is part of the business. And if you can't handle being wrong, then you're not going to do well in this business. Um, I, I was pretty comfortable with that from the beginning. I've always been comfortable with mistakes. Um, never had a problem making mistakes as, as, uh, as a young person. And I'm not, I, don't have, I don't have an issue making them now. Um, I don't feel awful when I make a mistake. I, you know, I get over it pretty quickly and, and I don't dwell on, dwell on it too much. I think, um, you know, working in a retail-focused organization, I can see that, Maybe the single biggest error that retail investors make is this this inability to handle error, and um, I think that's something we've. If you're a serious investor, you got to get over that really, really quickly. Um, and the second part of that is of looking like an idiot is you know if if you're trying to make uh, excess returns, beat the average, you can't just be doing what everyone else is doing. You have to be doing something different to everyone else if you want to make better returns than everyone. And doing something different often means um, being a contrarian. And being a contrarian means, for a time, looking like you're wrong. Um, you know, um, coal is probably a good example of that, Owen. Um, you know, I've been very early calling coal stocks. Um, and, uh, you know, I'd say for a good 18 months, I look like an idiot. And, and there was no shortage of people telling me I was one. Um, you know, uh, um, being early and being wrong is sometimes indistinguishable, but uh, if you're going to make excess returns, you, you have to do something different. And if you're not prepared to look like a fool for, for a time, then then it's going to be very hard to make excess returns. So, look, I, I just think that um, that psychology of being unafraid of being incorrect is just uh, one of the most important traits you can have as an investor. And I actually, I'd go even further and say without that trait, I don't think it can be a good one. Mm. Yeah, I, I agree. Um, I think investors do become very tribal and very defensive of positions, but uh, I guess it comes back to we, we can't will a stock price higher, no matter what we think, um, unless we have huge sums of money to push the price of the company higher, which let's uh, not talk about that too much. Um, then at the end of the day, it comes back to your process and and how you assess a situation, um, and including softer things like management and all the things that aren't binary uh, necessarily. Yeah, you, you can you, also make a really good decision and still be um, completely wrong in the outcome mm. as well. You know, I think people mm. forget that that we're dealing with a subject that has um, a lot of variability, and we're not going to get all that variability right. We're not going to capture it. So things happen that we didn't anticipate and uh, the outcome can be what we didn't want. But that doesn't mean your initial uh, investment case or your initial decision was the wrong one. You know, example we often use in the office is 
you know, if um, look, I don't know anything about soccer, but I think these are the right teams to use. You know, if if Manchester United was playing Crystal Palace, um, the guys in the office told me that that you should bet on Manchester every time. But occasionally, you know, you might have an upset, and occasionally Crystal Palace might win. Now that doesn't mean that you were wrong in betting on Manchester. I mean, that was the correct decision. It just sometimes you get you get the out, you don't get the outcome you expected. And, um, you know, that, that's the kind of, I think when you start thinking in those probabilistic ways, it just makes it easier to be able to handle error. Mm. Yeah, good point. I, I think Steve Johnson was the first one who introduced me to the idea of thinking probabilistically. Like I, I thought I'd come across it many times, but he was the one that kind of crystallized that for me. Um, there's a, there's a, um, a great book by Annie Duke. I'm not sure if you've read it called How to Decide. Have you mm. read that? I haven't, look, I'll be honest, I haven't read the book, but I've heard her speak about the book and I feel as though that should be enough. Mm. Yeah, she, she talks about one of, the, one of the things that's really influential in that book is this idea called resulting, which is where we judge the quality of our decision based on the results. When in investing, there are so many variables, as you said, there's so much variability and you're not, it's very rare that someone is right more than 50% of the time over a long period. And so we tend to judge the decisions and our process based on the result, which is not always the optimal outcome for long-term success. Um, there, you, you, you did segue here into, into coal stocks and um, I guess the, the industry at large. And I did hear in an uh, interview that, or a discussion you were having with David Koch uh, about Whitehaven Coal and, and New Hope. Um, and one of the things you said was, I'm not going to apologize for buying coal. And I know this is quite, uh, for some people, it's quite provocative, but I, I've, hearing you speak about it um, brought a lot of, I found, balance to this conversation. So I'm maybe just going to ask a couple of questions around this. Is well, The first one is more like ESG related. Um, how do you think, in, term, like in this is more like a personal philosophical question, is how do you think about coal stocks and, and ESG in general, um, like investing in them? Yeah, so this is this is quite a, a personal question. I, you know, ESG is is a curious thing. Uh, ethical investing is a curious thing for me. We we run an ethical fund, and it's done reasonably well. Uh, it's a very popular fund. I don't invest ethically myself. I, I just find, you know, the the question of what is ethical is a very tricky one. Um, you know, I explained that in economics, everything works on trade offs. And I, and I sometimes feel as though ethical investing uh, comes with too many absolutes. You know, this is right and this is wrong, whereas uh, reality involves trade-offs. And if you, don't, if you don't bring in trade-offs in decision-making, you end up labeling things good and bad, whereas most things have good and bad embedded in them. And it's a very simplistic idea just to say, this activity good, this activity bad. Um, you know, a few examples. I, I think the single... Worst development in my lifetime has been Facebook. I think it's probably the worst product that is the worst single worst product I can think of that's done the most harm of any other business I can think of in my in my lifetime that's come up in my lifetime. Please explain. I would love to know that. Look, I think I think uh, the amount of uh, stress and um, the way that young people now have to worry about what everyone else thinks about them. Look, there's a whole lot of reasons why why Facebook, I think, is a disaster, particularly for young people. 
And, um, you know, you look at the way young people interact um, and what does that contribute to the world? You know, what, what great benefit do we amass by the existence of Facebook? And yet no one, not a single fund in the world would put Facebook on an unethical business filter, right? No one would not buy Facebook because of ethics. You know, there are businesses that, uh, that underpay staff, that engage unethically uh, with suppliers or with staff. And no one thinks about putting those businesses in any sort of um, uh, unethical filter as well. It's just, it becomes very easy to point at industries, to point at businesses that everyone agrees are dirty or that are nasty and say, look, those are the bad ones. And um, I just think that that's not really ethical investing. That's mob rule. And um, it's not the way that I would conduct my investing at all. Now, Whitehaven and New Hope are coal producers. Coal, of course, um, releases a lot of greenhouse gases. And, you know, I, I consider myself an environmentalist. I don't want dirty stuff going up in the air. But these two businesses, they generate the best quality. They, they dig out the best quality coal. Um, in the industry. And if you didn't have them, you'd have dirty coal from Indonesia or from China supplying power stations in Asia. Um, there's also more nuance than that. You know, in, in the, these new age um, coal fire generators, they burn coal at really high temperatures and the amount of pollutants they, they throw out uh, probably about 50% of the old school um, thermal generators. And so the, the resulting pollution from those coal fired power stations is about the same as what you'd get in, in your typical gas fire power station. And, you know, the way we treat gas companies and coal companies seems to be very different, um, even though the pollutants is pretty much the same. You know, and I talk about trade-offs. At least these companies provide power. You know, I mean, it, it, it's hilarious to me that people in, in rich countries with all the comforts of the world uh, are happy to condemn um, people in poor countries to uneconomic or no power. Um, you know, as, as you alluded to before, living with no power is is a... Is <laughs> it's one of the worst things you could have. Um, just think about your own day and the energy embedded in your own day every single day and imagine what it would look like if you didn't have it. You know, that's not to say that I don't care about the planet. You know, the, it can't, the economics has an answer for, for climate change. It's actually a very simple answer. And every single person knows it, Owen. Um, the answer is to introduce a carbon tax. When, when there are externalities um, that are being thrown out, um, the uh, the solution is to price those externalities and reduce the output of them. We, we, we know all this. We've done it with cigarettes. We've done it with alcohol. Uh, we do it with petrol. It's amazing to me we don't do it with, uh, with carbon. Um, everyone knows that that's the right solution, and no one is prepared to do it. Now, should I not collect exceptional returns because uh, politicians don't want to introduce the optimal solution. You know, well, what's the right answer there? Do you not buy coal stocks, even though it's the clearly a, the, a mispriced asset? I, I just think that that's a it's a it's a silly it's it's a silly outcome um, uh, to a to a genuine problem. You know, if, if the problem is okay, we have the, the climate is an issue. You know, the, we, we want to reduce the amount of of, of carbon in the air. I think an unhelpful outcome of that is I'm not going to buy coal stocks that that produce high quality coal. I, I don't really see that connection at all. Mm. Do you see a carbon tax being introduced? Like, uh, I guess if so, what kind of time horizon? No, it won't be introduced. 
yeah, no. It, for, the, for the reasons why, it, it, I mean, I would say for the last 20 years, everyone has known. There's been all sorts of research done on it. Uh, every economist in the world knows it's the right solution. It's probably the only solution, yet no country has really done it on a large scale. And it's because it's um, unpopular and, um, and and costly to do so. Um, you know, there are, there are answers to that as well. You can always compensate people with the welfare system, you know. Um, but, but again, this is uh, – the fact that it hasn't been done yet, I think, uh, it tells you that it probably won't be done at all. Mm. Mm. Um, it's yeah, it's a it's a fascinating thing, Gaurav, that we have, um, and I, I'm glad that you brought up Facebook as an interesting one because totally separate industries has uh, I've never thought about it from the perspective of what product, uh, what value does it create outside of advertising, right? So um, I think that's something that I need to digest a bit there. How about in terms of then um, the the process you go through when you're looking at say coal stocks or feel free to use New Hope, Whitehaven, whatever, um, or any of the resources businesses that you cover. Um, in an, in, again, I'll refer to the, an email that you sent to me. You said um, most value-focused investors avoid mining and that's what creates the opportunity. Um, is this something that comes from what you would say is like, the circle of competence of most people. Like for example, me, I I profess to having very little ability to understand geology and studies and what have you. I, I find them very hard to wrap my head around. Um, so I guess the, the question is like, where does the value come from you being someone that has this focus and has this skill set, and what can we learn from you? It really surprises me uh, how many smart value-oriented investors just outright refuse to buy resource stocks. I, I'm genuinely um, surprised, and the list is extensive. You know, pretty much every smart value guy I know, value investor I know, um, says somewhere in their you know in, in their um, quarterlies or in their commentaries. You know, we're looking for high-quality businesses that produce cash flow with competent management teams and sensible balance sheets, but we don't buy resources. You know, um, they're fine. Yeah, you know, and and for me, I just think resources. There's there's no mystery or magic or anything scary about them. These are just cyclical businesses, um, and there are lots of there are lots of cyclical businesses. I mean, it, investors are happy to buy. Um, you know, uh, retailers, uh, manufacturers. Um, heavy industry businesses that are equally a cyclical, but for some reason um, nominate mining as one that's just too difficult or or too crazy for them to buy. And I just think that that makes the um, the resulting investment pool so much more interesting. It just means that there's a whole bunch of smart people who aren't buying these companies, which means I can compete with with people who just aren't as good. Um, the reason why I came to mining was not because I have uh, a super knowledge of mining. When I started, I knew nothing about mining. Um, the reason I, I, I first came to mining was because there were so many smart people weren't looking at it. And I just thought the, the opportunities were better. Um, you know, when, when, you're, when the people you're competing with um, are looking to get rich very, very quickly, <laughs> I just think that that's, uh, that's a great, that, that, that's exactly the kind of opponent you want to go up against, you know, and, and make no mistake, investing is an adversarial task. 
Uh, every time you buy a stock, one person is selling, one person is buying. Someone is right, someone is wrong. Uh, you need to think about the opposition. And I'd much rather be buying stock and selling stock too. Um, you know, some someone who doesn't understand the material, who just wants to get rich quick, who heard a, a thing from a mate or is following a forum, rather than someone who the whole resource with, with a whole research team at their disposal who is looking rationally and thoughtfully at different stocks. Um, you know, the the competition is is completely different. And when you think about it, Owen, every industry has variables that you know and variables that you don't know. I mean, one of the things I hear all the time is, oh, miners, you never know what price you're going to get. Well, that's true, but you have a pretty good idea of cost. You have a pretty good idea of output, and and the price is variable. Okay, well, have a look at a few other industries. You know, in, in, in retail, um, fashion is something you have no idea about. Um, and fashions change, and they're unpredictable, and yet everyone is happy to buy a discretionary retailer. Um, in telcos or in technology stocks, technology comes and goes in waves. There's new things. There's new fads. Um, we don't really understand them or keep track of them, but everyone is happy to buy them. They're often considered to be the best quality businesses. You know, how many people who buy Telstra understand the, the intricacies of the 5G network or how uh, broadband really works or how switching or DSLAMs work. You know, I mean, it, it seems to be an irrational decision to single out mining. Um, and I think the, the reason people do is because it's scary. There's a whole language surrounding mining that people are unfamiliar with, and that's what scares people away. It's not that these are necessarily inferior businesses. It's just that the language is different and they can be scary. So I often say that, you know, don't buy miners because they're lousy. Don't buy them because they don't make cash flow. Don't buy them because they're run by um, incompetent management. That's all legitimate. And I think that's all fine. But to not buy them because you don't buy commodities or because the price is unknowable, I just think that's lazy. Mm. Do you think, so I guess this is, um, maybe it's like a Warren Buffett doctrine here where we're you know, people think resources can be price takers, right? They, um, they're looking for durable competitive advantages and so on and so forth. Here's an interesting question around this is, do you think time horizon matters for resources businesses? And I, uh, I'm say, say for example, coal stocks being an example here, um, like your investment thesis, those companies being cheap, do you think you would be more comfortable having a shorter time horizon in resources business, say something that you assess like say a unity group, which is something I know you followed for quite some time, which is um, a fiber optic business here in Australia. Uh, would you say the time horizon on resources businesses tends tends to be shorter? It's just it's it's probably a different way of thinking, Owen. Um, you know, with with Unity Group, um, you know, when I first looked at Unity Group, Unity was a um, was a wireless telco business and wireless telco businesses that it uses um, microwaves to to beam um beam uh, signals to and from uh, base station into customers so every new customer had to have sort of a um a receiver set up um and you can only go in straight lines um the amount of capacity you can send in, a, in any given beam is is limited and it's um it, it's not a great business no one has really made money from it, and that's how unity got its start and um, 
And, and so I had no interest in Unity when it was that sort of business. Um, we did have a recommendation on a business called Opticom, which actually did own a wholesale fiber network. Um, and when Unity bought Fibercom, uh, when we Unity bought Opticom, uh, that's when the investment case changed, and uh, and that's when I got really interested into it. Um, uh, and and you know because you've got a a piece of physical infrastructure in the ground that requires very little maintenance capex. You know, fiber in the ground is um, you don't have to do much with it. You can actually increase the load and the speed running through that network. So you can you can extract more capacity without importing more cost, and and that makes a a, a very valuable asset for a long time. Whereas for, for miners, your your basic thought is the same. You know, you're trying to extract um, price and value out of your investment, but um, but the the resource is declining, um, and uh, you want to have some sort of certainty about uh, about the extraction price and the production. Um, You'll get into the future, so it's. I think you're right. I think you probably do have a different time horizon, but it's it's more than just a time horizon. You just have a different way of thinking. Every time um, we've made money from resources, it's it's not been because we've identified the next big thing. You know, I completely miss lithium, completely missed rare earths. It's just not the way I invest. Um, what I'm what I want to do is is recognize that that these are cyclical businesses. And and so the time to buy them is 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 when you when you buy them when no one else wants them and they're bombed out then you know if, if you accept that these um, are mean reverting then at some point the price will move back to historic norms and and that's the time for you to make your money and if the price goes above historic norms then that's the time for you to sell it it's not actually all that difficult it just requires um, a bit of patience and um, and the ability to buy when uh, no one else really wants them. With with coal stocks in, in particular. Sorry, Gareth. I was going to say that it, it's almost like I don't know if you've seen those studies that show when you um, do an attribution analysis over what drives stock returns, and over a five year period, you tend to see multiple expansion playing a big part. And I think that maybe comes back to that story or narrative. But over the longer term, it's the, the earnings power, basically, like the revenue growth. Um, so I, yeah, that was probably my two cents, just chipping in and interrupting you. Sorry, mate. Mm-hmm. No, no, I completely agree. That, that's interesting, isn't it? Yeah, and no one in their initial investment case. I wonder how many people actually put in that the that the P will expand. You know, that that's I think that's that's another word for luck. And and again, that's something we no one really wants to accept that a lot of our investment decisions are driven by luck. But I actually think they are. And um, and we always underestimate it. <laughs> we always forget to attribute luck. But it's a, it's actually a really important point. Um, I think it's Napoleon, right, who said he'd rather have a, a lucky commander than a competent one. And mm, uh, yeah. I often think I'd much rather be a lucky investor than a competent one. You know, I think it'd be, <laughs> your returns would definitely be better if you were just just had the luck. <laughs> yeah, but it also it also um, touches on the the narrative bias, right, or like the the storytelling, the stories that we tell ourselves, and the story that the market or you know the sentiment in the market is telling. I don't know if that makes sense. Like you mentioned cyclicality before. Like you would probably, in that case, you'd want to recognize when the cycle is lower, the, the narrative is probably very negative. Um, and then through your research, determine what is and isn't uh, that bias, I guess. Yes, you're right. Um, every, every cycle uh, comes with a narrative. And um, once you go through some of these, the narrative starts to become awfully familiar. 
um, you know, uh, I remember when um, when Fortescue first came on board, right? It was um, it was the third force in iron ore. Uh, it went from what a dollar to I don't know what to get to eight nine bucks in, in the first wave. Um, you know, it, it was probably the only time in history that a, a business could spend um, the thirty or forty billion in capex required to compete with. Rio and BHP, um, and the, the narrative was all about the industrialization of China. Um, that narrative allowed Fortescue to get uh, funding that no one in 60 years had been able to access to build the infrastructure needed to bring some of these mines online. Um, the narrative was incredibly important. And then when, then when um, the, the, the boom came to bust, Fortescue wasn't the third force in iron ore anymore. It was a debt-laden um, iron ore miner that uh, that produced low-quality ore. And I remember everyone was talking about, well, these guys only have 57 55% iron. They're always going to attract a big discount. Those discounts are going to widen forever. And, you know, the narrative changed. I think you having an eye for story and just listening to the stories the market tells you Comparing those stories against reality is a really, that's become a very important process for me. Um, I mentioned before, I really, I've always enjoyed reading novels and books. Intelligent Investor is one of the few places I can think of that actually encourages and sometimes even demands that our analysts read, um, on, uh, read fiction and understand the story. I think understanding narrative is, it goes a long way towards understanding cycles and, and recognizing opportunity. Mm. What are what are some of your favorite uh, fiction books? It's changed when I have to admit, when I was younger. I really liked um, highbrow fiction. My favorite book for a long time was uh, A Suitable Boy, which I think is I think it's still the uh, the longest book in the English language, <laughs> and I just ripped through that and I loved it. Um, and um, you know, these days I, I'm reading a lot more um, uh, fantasy and, um, and and dorky books like that. Um, I, went, I read Game of Thrones well before the uh, the TV show came out, and I just thought it was a wonderful piece of imagination. I loved it, um, and I still think the books are way better than the TV show. But yes, um, I've become a lot more um, nerdy in my reading habits than uh, than I used to be. Mm. The um the suitable boy I just looked it up it's about 1500 pages. Uh so yeah it's 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 quite a book um at that length. Uh there's probably one more question. I mean I could talk to you for hours Gaurav, but uh, there's maybe one more question that I'd like you to reflect on which is just it's a typical question that I ask which is if you were to go back to your younger self and tell your you know your teenage self or whatever um one thing about money, investing, business, life? I'm just curious to know what it would be. I think there are two things, um, if that's okay, if I may, Owen. <laughs> One is that I, I wish I had started investing um, earlier. Um, I came to investing, I guess, a bit later in life than I would have liked. Um, serious investing. I think, I think not just dabbling with uh, a bit of spare money, but, but proper understanding of, of business that's something i'm trying to teach um my son as well i, I think you know we'll we'll go into stores and um he's only seven but i want him to understand what's happening when he goes into a store you know what what service is being provided what what 
um, you know, how much are we paying? What are we getting for what we're paying? There's these very simple things about um, uh, about business, which I never thought about earlier. I wish I had thought about earlier. I think the earlier you can understand commerce and business, the uh, the, the more it gets into you. Um, but I think uh, even above that, though, is just um, being comfortable making mistakes, being comfortable making errors. I've, I think I've, I've got a higher threshold for errors than most people, simply because I probably make more errors than most people. But um, in, in, when I was younger, I still think um, making errors, getting things wrong, I found um, uh, more more painful than it should have been. You know, I, I, I think um, uh, it, it's a, it's a wonderful privilege to be able to make a mistake and then to get up and and have another go. Not everyone gets that chance and. Um, you know, to really appreciate uh, appreciate the fact that you get to make errors and get to get up and make have another go at something is is something that um, I wish my younger self hadn't had known. I wish I'd tried more things, made more mistakes, um, and I probably didn't do as much as I wanted to do because of the the, the fear of, of making errors. That's you're the first person that said that um, on the series so far. I think that's. That's wonderful, and um, I think if you reflect on that as a parent too, providing that that safe space for um, your son to take risks and to make mistakes is is so important. Um, well, when he comes back from school every day, um, uh, one of the first things I ask him is, is, "Tell me about something you got wrong. Tell me about the mistake you made today." And I really want that that comfort with with um, failure and mistakes. I just think um, we don't we don't. Society um, still punishes um, error, and I just and I think that's a mistake. Mm. Mm. That's that's fantastic. Um, so, for the for listeners who want to get more of Gaurav, you can head to the intelligentinvestor.com.au. There'll be links in the show notes. Uh, please please take up a fifteen day trial of Intelligent Investor subscription if you want to get more of his insights and and read some of his pieces over the years. I I, I forget the count of how many updates you've done for intelligent investor members the pages just went on and on and on as i was flicking through it mate um but as you can hear he's a wealth of knowledge so grave i could i could chat to you again and i hope um sometime in the future we can check in but i just would really want to say thanks um thanks for taking the time out to join me and have this chat today my pleasure and thank you for your patience i was i've been sick for a while so you've been uh, you've been very patient with me as well oh, fantastic mate i appreciate it For more than a decade, I've been hunting for the best investors and their methods, strategies, and tools for investing. After years in the industry, countless books, a few degrees, and 1,000 podcasts and live shows, I've rolled this accumulated knowledge into something called Rask Invest. If you've ever heard me talk about a core and a satellite, active and passive, true long-term compounding, or you simply want to know exactly how I would invest... Now is your chance. Rask Invest is our new investment service, designed for all types of investors who want professional management of their core portfolio at a low cost from a team they trust. Rask Invest helps you automate your wealth creation and passive income. Simply click the link that says Invest with Owen in your podcast player. 
to join one of our live platform walkthroughs or book a call with us. You can also view the Rask Invest PDS and TMD and get invested with me.